John 3, verses 22 through uh, 36. Um, last week we started off, uh, or last week we uh, continued the, the preaching of the Word through the book of John. And um, one of the things that we saw last week in the book of John is, um, is why God sent His Son to uh, die on the cross for us. You see, we, we, we had kind of seen as we were walking through the first two chapters of the book of John that um, God sent His Son to, to purify us by His death. And, and the, the question that we asked last week was why? Why would God do that? Why would God save us? And the answer is because God loves us. It's because of God's great love for us that He would send His Son to die on the cross in our place for our sins. And this week we come to the second half of John, chapter 3. And most of the first half of the Gospel of John is really spent introducing us to Jesus. It's a great book. Um, it's a great book if you want to uh, tell an unbeliever to read a book and get to know the Jesus. The Gospel of John is a great book for that. But the second half of John 3 um, gives us a, a, one of the few handful of glimpses of what it means if Christ is who he says he is, if Christ is doing what he says he is, what that should mean and imply for us as Christians. In other words, it, it, it teaches us something about how we should obey and how we should um, follow him. It gives us a, a uh, indication about what it looks like for Christians to live faithfully in our discipleship. And so would you look with me now as we turn to John 3, 3, 22 through 36, as we see how, how we should respond to this great love that God has for us. It says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going over to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase... But I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Father, have one more time as we come before Your Word. Would You use it to shape us and to mold us, to make us more and more into the image of Your Son. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. In 2019, 
2018, Brian Resnick, who's a reporter at Vox, wrote a story about what he, what's called the Loss of Confidence Project. The Loss of Confidence Project. And the Loss of Confidence Project was an academic project on the part of some uh, psych, uh, academic psychologists in Germany to try to get public scientists to admit when they had become persuaded that a previous, con- uh, a previous conviction that they had had was wrong. And so in other words, he was, trying, uh, he was writing this story. This story was profiling how um, there was an attempt to try to get people to admit that they had been wrong, to do something that's relatively straightforward, admit when they had made a wrong conclusion. Now, um, the the whole goal of the Loss of Confidence Project was to foster um, an attitude of humility amongst academics, which if you've spent a little bit of time amongst academics, which I know some of you have, is a bit of a struggle. And the Loss of Confidence Project was an attempt to maybe adjust that just a little bit. Now, um, fascinating story. I, it's well worth a read. And, uh, I think one of the interesting things about this story, well, t- a couple of them are on the one hand, um, it really shows just how easily pride and narcissism and, um, arrogance can contort a system that when there's a, a system of, uh, uh, some kind of competition that, that pride so easily takes control of that things and can contort it in such a way that it, 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 the output is not totally genuine and ha- having a total integrity. I think another interesting thing about this, uh, about this paper, was the clear assumption that the, the author had and the authors of the study had, and this is where I think they go wrong, that, if, that really the reason that there was pride in, amongst these academics that they were profiling was because the culture of the scientific community made them that way. So they weren't actually proud. They weren't actually the problem. It was the community that they were part of. Now again, if you've ever spent any time around academics, you know there might be just a little bit more to the story. Because all of us, deep in our own heart, all of us have a spirit of pride that festers and fosters. And the reason that the systems and cultures and communities and churches and businesses go awry because of pride is not the problem with the system, it's the problem with the people in the system. It's a problem with us. It's a problem with me. It's a problem with you. And yet for all that, even though oftentimes pride and arrogance is our default, there's still something in us that when we see somebody who's genuinely humble, when we see somebody who is sincerely, um, who, who is sincerely humble, there's something about that that's compelling that draws us in. There's something in our heart that says that's the way that it should be. That's the way that we all should be. There, there's something about this idea that uh, of humility that deeply, deeply beckons to the deepest parts of who we are. Humility is a profoundly compelling thing. And even though we all struggle with pride in our hearts... I think we would all say we want to be more humble. And the passage that we're dealing with today gives us a a glimpse, a snapshot of what true humility is. Uh, so how we're going to discuss this today is I want to I show us 
what humility looks like, what humility looks like, what humility is, and then where it comes from. What it looks like, what it is, and where it comes from. What it looks like, where what it is, and where it comes from. And I, I believe that part of the reason this passage is in the book of John is because the, the author of the gospel wants to give us an example of what it looks like to be humble. It, he wants to give us an example of someone that we can imitate so that we imitate Christ. John the Baptist is, of course, not perfect, but he points to the one who is. And his example gives us um, one more shade of what it looks like to live a Christ-like life. Now, I want to point your attention to these first few verses here um, when we look at what, what the humility of John looks like. It says, after this, so after what? After the, the episodes in Jerusalem where Jesus cleared out the temple, and then after he had this discussion with Nicodemus. So after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, so what happens is Jesus, after all these events in Jerusalem, is hanging out around Jerusalem in the Judean countryside. We know later on that he has friends in the village of Bethany. That's where Lazarus and his family lives. So maybe he's there. He's somewhere in the vicinity of Jerusalem, maybe Jericho, and he is baptizing. He and his disciples are are preaching a similar message to John, and, and they are baptizing. Now, what's fascinating about this is verse 23. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put into prison. Now, I know that um, many of us have the geography of the Holy Land memorized, but just in case you need a refresher, Anon near Salim is in a vicinity of modern-day Israel, which is called Samaria. So John the Baptist goes to the vicinity of Samaria to baptize. Now here's why that's significant. Because the focal center of Jewish life in the first century was in Jerusalem. It was in Jerusalem. That's where Jesus is. That, that area around, the, around Jerusalem, Jesus is baptizing in, and Jesus is preaching in, and Jesus is uh, doing his miracles in. That's where Jesus is at this time. And John the Baptist, instead of being there, goes into Samaria, which was avoided by Jews like the plague. When Jews wanted to go from Samaria to Galilee and vice versa, they would go across the Jordan River and they would go all the way down before and then come back around instead of just taking a straight shot straight through Samaria. But Jesus, but John the Baptist chooses to conduct his ministry in Samaria, the place where Jewish people didn't want to go. Why is that? He's giving Jesus the center of attention. He's giving Jesus the primary place. He's giving Jesus the, 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 all the center, all the influence. He is taking a back seat. He is in second fiddle. Geographically, he's positioning himself in such a way so that Jesus gets more attention than he does. And this is, of course, before he gets put into prison. Because, of course, we know that from the other Gospels that John the Baptist would later be put into prison and for, what, for which eventually he would, where he would never return. Now it says in 25, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. 
How many of you ever get into a fight and it's really not about what it's about? Let me, I, okay, is that just because you guys all do it? Right, okay, so that's what's happening here. John the Baptist disciples and this Jewish person get into a fight over purification, but it's really not over purification. So they have this discussion, and I think probably the author gives us purification just so we keep that in our minds for what Jesus is going to do. But for whatever reason, this sets the disciples off of John the Baptist. And, and their, their problem really isn't with this Jewish person about purification. And for whatever reason, they, it, sends them to their disciple, it sends them to their master in verse 26. It says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi... He who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So the disciples of John, they they see that there's less and less people coming to them to get baptized, that the ministry of John the Baptist is becoming less and less influential, less and less effective, less and less primary, less and less important. And his disciples can sense this. They feel like they're a little bit on a sinking ship. You can probably imagine the emotions that are going through their head. There's, there's worry. I mean, what are we going to do if John kind of fizzles out? There's, there's maybe a little bit of nostalgia because they had this, the, these memories that had been built up ministering beside John all these years. There's anger. There's disappointment. There's sadness. You can imagine there's all these emotions going between in, in, John, in John's disciples' heads. And so they come to him, and they complain and say, Jesus is getting all the attention. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John says, effectively, Well, everything I have is from above. Everything that this ministry that I have is all given from heaven. That it's all from the Lord. It's not my ministry. It's not my people. I, this is all. This is all. I'm just doing what God has given me to do. And if that is over, that means that it's over. It's not my fault. He said. Besides, verse twenty-eight. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. He said, you know, from the beginning, I've told you, I'm not the guy. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the king. I'm not the one who's been promised. I'm not the son of man. I am the one who came to, to make a way. I'm, I'm the one who came to make much of him. That's like been my whole thing. And then he says this in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John says, if I could paraphrase this in today's parlance, I'm not going to be the best man who thinks it's all about me. I'm not going to be that best man or that maid of honor at the wedding who makes it all about them. This is is not about me. This is about him. This this, that, that he is coming for his bride, and I am just the friend of the bridegroom. And if he is happy, then I am happy. You see, in all of this, that John is is repeatedly giving us an example of what it looks like to be humble. And of course, this itself is reflective of the attitude of Christ throughout the, the Gospels, throughout the Bible. It's not for no reason that the Old Testament prophesied about the Christ who was to come as the suffering servant. 
the one who would come to serve his people. And of course, it's in John's gospel in John 13, on the night in which he is betrayed, where Jesus, having loved his disciples, loved them till the end. And he took off his tunic and he wrapped a garment around him and he got onto his hands and his knees and he washed the feet of the disciples. And it's not like washing our feet because back in the, those days they wore sandals everywhere and they're walking on dusty roads and their sands are, those feet are calloused and caked with dirt and muck and grime. It was a, a position that was humiliating in Christ himself, humbles himself to the point of being a servant. Some people think that it's this episode which inspires what Paul himself says in Philippians 2, where Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." What, what does true humility look like? True humility looks like Jesus. It looks like a willingness to not make oneself the center of attention. It looks like a willingness to, to put somebody else, somebody greater at the center. So if that's what it looks like, if it looks like Christ, if it is Christ-likeness, if, if John the Baptist himself is just giving us a glimpse and a picture of how Christ would come to save us, then what is true humility? What is true humility? And here I think verse 30 is um, very pivotal, foundational. It says, he must increase, but I must decrease. So, so John's attitude is to make much of Christ and less of himself. John's attitude is to put Christ at the center and to recede into the background. That Christ is going to be the main stage and he's going to play second fiddle. Christ is going to be the, the main player and he's going to be a support, supporting cast. That Christ is the center and he's the one who must increase and John must decrease. And by the way, this isn't John, this isn't John just self-loathing and self-hating and self-pitying and woe is me and Eeyore-like. John doesn't have any particular visceral hatred towards himself. He actually thinks that he's been sent by God. He says that pretty clearly. He says, uh, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John has a... It's not so much that John just... He can't stand the thought of himself. It's that John thinks so highly of Christ that he can't possibly imagine upstaging him. That, that's... That's what his humility is. It's it's a desire to put Christ first and to play the part that God has given him. We see this very clearly admonished in Romans 12. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, 
each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. But that's not all that makes John's humility what it is. Because I think probably most of us, we can get there mentally at least, right? We can say, okay, I'm not the center. Jesus is the center. I'm not the man. I'm okay with that. I think mentally most of us can get there. Most of us probably, we can accept those facts. They're pretty incontrovertible that Jesus is the point and I'm not. But here's what's different about John's humility. Verse 29. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. Listen, pay attention to that. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. It's not just that John sees himself as playing the second fiddle. It's not just that John fades into the background. It's not just that John chooses not to be the center and let Christ have the center role. It's that he's happy about it. You and I probably, most likely, can get there mentally, but we're not necessarily happy campers about it. And we like to grumble, say, well, I don't want to be the center anyways. But the humility of John is such that he is happy, that his joy is complete when Christ takes the center stage. That he finds joy in forgetting about himself and in making much of Jesus. Friends, that is true humility. True humility is not just recognizing that you are not the center. It's being happy about that fact. It's, it's, being, it's being glad and joyful about the fact that somebody, even anybody, but especially Christ, is now at the center and you're not. That is a supernatural, unearthly, unworldly, strange kind of humility. It's the kind of humility that is off-putting. It's the kind of humility that, at the same time, beckons one in. And it's the kind of humility that I think we should all pray that we would be known for. To be joyful in the supremacy of Christ in our lives. To be joyful in the fact that we're not the center of the universe. To be glad that not everybody who walks by us is thinking about us all the time. That's true humility. And the question is, where does John get that? (laughs) Where, Where in the world can we get that? Where can we have that kind of humility? Where can we take joy in Christ being the supreme center of our lives? And that's what I believe the rest of this passage is communicating for us. Where, where, what do we need to accept? What do we need to, to uh, absorb deeply in order to get to the place where John the Baptist is? And, and I believe that this last, chap, this last verses 31 through 36 is going to tell us that where that kind of humility comes from is to accept deeply the supremacy of Christ. 
Let me give you four ways, four ways in which Christ is better in these last couple verses here. Four ways in which Christ is better. Number one, he is, he has a better source. He has a better source. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now, We've already seen this, some of this language last week when we talked about the Son of Man coming down from heaven and revealing the, the way of the Father because he's been there. And the point of what the gospel is telling us here is that Christ is from above and therefore he's above all. If that's where he's from, that's, he is above all. To, to recognize that supremacy of Christ is to recognize that he comes from a better place. And in here, we probably see a contrast, at least partially intended, with John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist, even though, as Jesus himself says, is there's no one been from woman uh, who's of uh, this world who is uh, superior to John, that he is from earth. You and I are from earth. But Jesus is from above. He's from heaven. He is above all. So he has a better source. Secondly, Jesus has a better witness. He has a better witness. Verse 32 says this, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. He bears a better witness. Jesus is better because he can witness what is true. He can witness to the realities of heaven, and we cannot. Even John the Baptist could only witness to what he has seen and heard, that being Christ. But the Son can actually tell us about the Father. The Son actually can come and communicate to us what he has seen and heard, namely the Father, the words of the Father himself. He has a better witness. Verse 34 says, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. It's almost like you and I can't compare. The witness that the Son has is the very words of God because He is indwelt by the Spirit of God. That the Father from before eternity past has been giving to the Son the Spirit and the Son has been telling, the, telling anyone who will listen about the goodness of the Father. Do you understand that you and I just don't hold a candle to that? You guys are all really smart. I love getting together and getting to talk with you and all that, but Jesus has a better witness. He knows God better than we do. Why should he be supreme? Because he knows more than we do. And he says it better than we do. And not only does he have a better witness, but to receive his witness leads to eternal life. Because when it says in verse 33, it says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. In other words, he agrees to it, acknowledges it, signs on to this, confesses that God is true. Do you realize that to receive his testimony means that you agree with God himself is what he's saying. He has a better witness. Third, he knows the Father better than we do. Specifically, he knows the love of the Father better than we do. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Why is the Son better? Because he has known the love of the Father from eternity past. And he's received all things from the Father. That the Father loves the Son and gives the, Father, give the Son all that he has. And the Son receives it. 
that the Son is supreme, ought to be supreme in all of our lives because He has a better relationship with the Father than we do. And because He welcomes us into that relationship. 1 John, as we saw last week, 1 John 4, 8, for God is love. And this, the love of God, is made manifest that He gave His Son as a sacrifice for sins. It's not just, it's not just that the Son has a better relationship with the Father, although that is true. It's that He welcomes us into the relationship that He has with the Father. We saw that last week in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Well, who does this Father love, the Son or the world? Yes, He loves the world by giving, by giving them the Son. And He loves the Son by giving Him the world. Jesus has a better relationship with the Father. And finally this, and I think this is pivotal, and this builds on all this, and I, I think without this last one, you will never have the kind of humility that John the Baptist does. Because Jesus gives a better life. Verse 36, who be, whoever believes in the Son has what? Has eternal life. What does that mean? Well, it means what we saw last week, that Jesus was lifted up as the sacrifice for our sins, that he became a curse for us, that in him, in his crucifixion, God was putting the curse to, to a curse. He was putting death to death. He was crucifying sin in the flesh of Christ. And because Christ has suffered that penalty for us, we can have eternal life. And so to believe in the Son will bring eternal life because just like the Israelites looked to the snake in the wilderness and they looked at it lifted up and by looking at it and gazing at it, they were putting their sins on it. So when you and I look at Christ and we gaze at Him and we give Him our sins, we get His life. And that's the source of true humility is being willing to admit that you need that. Being willing to admit that you need the life that the Son can give. Being willing to admit that you need His eternity. And you'll notice that this is contrasted with those who don't receive Him. It says, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That, that whoever thinks, okay, I don't need Jesus. I'll do it on my own. I can get around. I can figure this out. I can do this on my own. Is A, they're under the punishment of God, but they never get the eternal life that Christ has to offer them. Christians, the source of true humility comes with recognizing that you need the life that only Christ can give. And here's the assumption that John the Baptist has and that you and I should have as well. A life in Christ, life in Christ is eternally richer and fuller and more satisfying, even if you're playing second fiddle, than life without him. Life without him is here today, gone tomorrow. It vanishes and is crushed under the weight of the wrath of God. But life in Christ is more joyful and it's more rich 
and it's more satisfying and it's fuller. You just have to accept that you're not the center of the universe. You just have to accept that there is somebody who's supreme. There is somebody who's in charge. There is a God in heaven, and it's not you. There is somebody who ought to be the center of our attention and our affection and our worship. And it's just not us. I believe if you ever want to have the kind of humility that John the Baptist has, if you ever want to have this joyful humility, the attitude that takes joy in saying, he must increase and I must decrease, it starts with recognizing that you need the life that only Christ can give. And the only way to have that friend is to believe in him, to receive him, to accept him. It's to say, Jesus, I want all of you, even if it means playing second fiddle, please take all of me. Take all of my sin, take all of my shame, take all my regret, take all my pain, and give me salvation. That's what salvation means. That's what it means to receive him, and you can do that even now. Christians, there is far more life to be had, far more life to be had playing the supporting role for eternity than being on center stage for one weekend. There's far more life to be had in Christ and receiving all that he has for us. So as we turn to apply this, I think it's a good idea, number one, to assess and ask yourself, am I increasing in my life or is Christ? Do I increasingly see myself as the center of attention? Do I increasingly see myself as the center of the universe? Do I increasingly see myself as the magnet for everyone's attention? Or is it Christ? I think you should assess, and I think part of the reason that you should do that is because your pride might just be keeping you back from experiencing fullness of life in Christ. Your pride and your inability to see that your need for Him might just be keeping you back from experiencing all that God has for you in Christ. Assess and ask yourself, who's increasing in my life? Is God or am I? I think secondly, secondly, to, in order to apply this, I think that this means that we need to be willing to humble ourselves. I think that this means that we need to be willing to say, I do need his salvation. I do need all that he can give. I do need his forgiveness and his eternal life. I do need it. I think it means that we need to, and and if we're going to say that we do need it, it means that we need to be honest about our own sin. Part of the reason that we have a prayer of confession every week here is to model for you what confession should be taking like in your own heart throughout the week. Part of the reason that uh, we gave a lot of the volunteers here a great a devotional, Be Thou My Vision. And if you don't have a devotional, let me know. I'll, we'll get that for you. Um, is because every day that devotional trains you to confess your sins. The, because I think the more that we're willing to confess our sins and be honest with ourselves about our need for God, the more that we'll experience His eternal life. And then third, I think that this means that we need to receive Him. I think that we need to take the step of believing in Him and taking hold of Him and grabbing hold of Him. I think that this means that we need to take the step of saying, yes, Jesus, I do need you, and taking hold of his promises. 
of clinging to them and putting them into our heart. I believe that this also means, fourth, that we need to make daily decisions, habitual decisions, of choosing Christ over ourselves. I believe that this means that we need to take daily decisions of choosing Christ over ourselves. So it might just mean that you choose on a daily basis to get up 30 minutes earlier to spend more time in the Word. It might just mean that you choose with your, with your wife or husband, of course, to, to give a little bit more to the church. It might just mean that you choose small, daily, habitual ways to make more of Christ than to make of yourself. Now, I, I, wanna, I want to make sure I'm being clear here. Sometimes I think that we think that if I don't have joy in those activities, if I don't have joy in sacrificing my time and my energy and my everything to, to engage in these, then I shouldn't do them. But the reality is joy in the Christian life is reciprocal with these activities. So oftentimes we don't do these things because we have joy, but these are the very things that will lead to joy in our lives. And so we choose them, we choose not to do them because we don't have joy, when the reality is that these are the very things that will lead to joy in our lives. And yes, that it's like a dopamine hit. Yes, getting joy will lead us to do that thing again, but somewhere you've got to get into the cycle. And so if you are saying, well, I just don't have joy. I don't, know if I, can, I don't know if I can really engage in Bible study, honestly, because I don't have joy. Well, pray that you would have joy and do it anyways. Joy comes from those activities. It is not always immediately present right before you engage in those activities. Oftentimes, joy, experiencing joy, is like when, I was, when we lived in Chicago, there was a chocolate factory right down on the river. And it probably had all kinds of chemicals and pollution and all that in, in it, but I choose not to think about that. And every now and then when you'd walk around the streets of Chicago in that part of Chicago, you'd, you'd get the whiff of the chocolate that would be sifting through the air. Again, probably I'm going to get cancer and my face will start glowing at some point. Or there was this bread factory. I know some of it, that's anathema nowadays. But there was this bread factory down, the, down Chicago Avenue. And you could, you could, every now and then, you just get the, it wafting through the air, that fresh dough. But if you went out looking for it, you'd never find it. The only way to smell that, to get the savor of that chocolate or that dough, was just to go about your daily business and hope that you would. Oftentimes, joy in the Christian life is the same way. If you go looking for it, it's so hard to find. But if you engage in the daily, regular rhythms and repetitions of Christianity, of choosing on a daily basis to make much of Christ, that's where joy comes in. And it comes wafting in unexpected and adds life to these activities. We need to make a daily, regular, habitual habit of choosing Christ over myself. Now, if I can just say this, this has the potential, I think, to change some very basic ways about the ways that we conduct our lives. Let me just give one, one example amongst many, but it's one that applies to me personally. Oftentimes, 
when Christian men think about headship in the home, they think that it means that I give the marching orders and everybody follows. Okay, but this vision for what it means to be humble would actually tell us, no, you should sacrifice what is best for you for the sake of your family. So you give up your own desires, you give up your own inklings, you give up your own preferences for the sake of others. And in that way, you humbly lead. And Christians, that to choose humility, to choose to cultivate humility on small daily basis can influence even some of these just regular ways that we go about living our lives. Uh, let me just also say this. So I don't, I don't know where I'm at with my numbers of applications. Um, I think that this means that we need to take every thought captive. Take every thought captive. As you are trying to cultivate humility, pay attention to the times where you hear somebody talking and you start wondering if they're talking about you or you start thinking about what you would say to that other person. Let me give you an example. On Friday, I was working on a sermon about humility and I was sitting in a coffee shop downtown. I saw these two people come in and just something about my judgmental trigger went off. And I was just here, I was just thinking, ah, oh, these two, these two fools. And then I typed out on my computer, take every thought captive. I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> Oftentimes, instinctively and intuitively, we assume that other people are thinking about us or that what we have to say towards other people is superior and we put other people down and puff ourselves up in the back of our heads. And I just think we need to cut it out. I think we need to, when we sense that happening, confess that and move on. Christians, we need to take every thought captive. Let me also say this. It is better to have this vision for joy before suffering than after. This vision for joyful humility before suffering than after. You'll notice in verse 24, it is very clear, for John had not yet been put into prison. That John the Baptist cultivated this kind of humility before he went into prison and lost his life than after. And the reason for that is this. Oftentimes, I do believe that God uses suffering to humble us. I really believe that. That oftentimes in our lives, God uses suffering to humble us. But I also believe that sometimes in the midst of suffering, especially when we're proud, resentment can fester. And the more that we've cultivated pride, even in the back of our heads before suffering hits, the longer it takes for suffering to actually humble us. But if we allow ourselves to be humble and to take joy in all that Christ is doing in our lives and has done for us, before that happens, then we're not going to have to cut through that resentment to learn all that God has for us in suffering. It's better to have joyful humility before suffering hits than after. I love one of the characters from church history who I love is uh, George Whitfield, And George Whitfield was a 
I don't know if you've ever read or heard anything about him. He was a he was amazing. He could preach, and this is the days before microphones, to 20,000 people outside. Isn't that amazing? That's insane. I mean, I know my mom says I have a voice that carries, but that's something else. And George Whitfield was he was just a gifted man, and he he was uh, doing these revivals in England, and he had he had um, led so many people to Christ, and he went away, he went to the United what was the thirteen colonies at the time, and he came back, and a controversy had arisen when he was gone, and it was between a, a it was over a theological matter, and it was between him and a, another well known revivalist named John Wesley. John Wesley was actually originally kind of George Whitfield's understudy. And obviously this broke out and this led to a long antagonism and a long conflict. And yet throughout all of this, George Whitfield kept his humility. In fact, at one point, Charles Wesley got sick of his brother and tried to come over and hang out with George Whitfield. And he said, don't abandon your brother. I don't want a friend like that. Just a humble, humble man. And somebody, somebody asked George Whitfield once if he thought he would see John Wesley in heaven. And George Whitfield said, no, I, I don't. But I think that's going to be because he'll be too close to the throne for me to even pay attention to him. It was that kind of humility that when George Whitfield died, he asked that John Wesley was the one who did his funeral. Christians, this is the kind of joyful humility that we ought to cultivate and we ought to pray for. And it only comes by recognizing that true life can be found in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you that you've sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, to give us eternal life. God, we thank you that through taking joy in that eternal life, we can have humility. And we can take joy in humility. Father, we thank you that, that humility doesn't just have to be something that we grit our teeth to get done. But rather that humility is something that we can take joy in. Father, I know that sometimes there's that pride that kicks up and wants to make much of ourselves and not much of Christ. And Father, I pray that this sermon would work towards the end in all of our lives, where Christ, that we would all more and more increasingly, day by day, make more of Christ than we do of ourselves. And it's His, his name that we pray. Amen.